0: epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock from the Dalana La School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and I am joined by my friend and co-host Matt Fox from Boston University. How's it going?
1: Oh it's going Haley. It's going. That's all I can say really.
0: Yeah it's, it's that mid mid everything catching up with you tsunami running very fast.
1: The thing is, I don't have the usual winter excuse. Normally, mid-winter, I'm just exhausted with winter. But this has actually been a mild winter, so it's really just the usual work stuff. and
0: Yeah, everything is just so busy all the time. I saw a meme once that was, adulthood is feeling like, next week it's going to slow down. Or constantly saying, next week it's going to slow down. And it never does. And that's how I feel about my life.
1: Every year when it gets towards the end of the spring semester, I say to people, "Oh, I just got to get to the summer and then everything will calm down and I'll be able to catch up on all of the things that I've been putting off. And every year I get to summer and it doesn't happen. So I need to just stop saying it. It's just never going to happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, I say that about the fall semester every year also, you know, oh, it's just it's just the start of the fall. It's just crazy getting everyone settled and getting enrolled and, you know, all the students getting into their classes and, and it's. It's just the fall.
1: What is your position on email bankruptcy? Have we talked about this before?
0: No, I don't know what that is.
1: Oh, when you just declare bankruptcy and you delete everything in your inbox and send out a message to everyone saying you declare email bankruptcy and can't respond to anything (laughs) previously and you'll only be responding to new things going forward.
0: I have never heard of that concept.
1: Pretty sure i made it up, but I still think it should be a thing.
0: It makes sense. There are some days where I wish I could declare email bankruptcy, but I feel like I live in a teetering state of almost email bankruptcy all the time because I just can't respond. I feel like every email I write starts with, sorry, it's taken me so long to respond to this, which I should just stop doing. I can respond when I can respond.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You just give up on that.
0: Yeah. All right. So we are now in the third season of our Serious Epi podcast. We are still going over the fourth edition of Modern Epi. There is so much content in this book for us to discuss that we decided to spill over into a third season. So today we are here talking about chapter 13 on measurement and measurement error. Before we jump into that stuff, Matt and I wanted to just chat a little bit about some stuff that's going on in our lives. So I was going to ask Matt a question about something new he's learned related to epidemiology.
1: Well, I have spent some time this past month learning about sign dags. Hmm. I mean, I've always known, I've known about sign dags for a long time, but I never actually spent the time to really dig into them. So that's been kind of interesting. But the newest thing that I recently learned about a student emailed me a paper that I had not heard of is, have you heard of entropy balancing?
0: I've heard of it as a phrase, but I could not tell you anything beyond that.
1: Oh yeah, I I can't tell you much about it yet because I haven't really learned about it, but it sounded like something sort of in the realm of propensity scores and then inverse probability weighting, which is designed to deal with some of the problems with, I think, small cells and things like that when you're doing inverse probability weighting. It sounded really interesting, so I think I'm gonna spend some more time trying to figure that one out.
0: And it's a, a method, entry balancing?
1: Well, now you're getting a little bit outside of the amount of learning that I've actually done on the topic. So I don't know. I mean, I think so.
0: You'll have to come back and update us on your, your learnings about entropy balance.
1: It's also, I believe, a doubly robust method. But do I really know what doubly robust means? I mean, I did learn it at one point, but then I forgot.
0: Can I come back to your signed DAGs point for a second, which, you know, is more in my wheelhouse than entropy, which reminds me of high school chemistry. That was probably the last time I... That entropy is a chemistry concept, isn't it?
1: I thought it was physics.
0: Whatever, I I dropped physics, so I think it might be in chemistry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it could be. I barely learned any chemistry, so.
0: Okay, no, one, one of those high school science concepts. But sign DAGs, I really liked sign DAGs because I think it forces you to take what you've put down on paper in a DAG format and actually think through the strength of the relationship. Not strength, sorry, direction. Why don't more people use sign DAGs?
1: Why don't more people use DAGs?
0: Well, yeah, that's, I I mean, in the subset of individuals who are using DAGs, wouldn't it be useful to make almost all DAGs signed?
1: So I think the answer to that is probably yes, but I think there are definitely some complications with signed DAGs that you you got to learn. You know, when you have a complicated DAG with multiple levels of pathways by which your covariate is affecting the exposure and the outcome, going through you know different potential other confounders or covariates, you know, signed DAGs get a little complicated to figure out how the net effect of all these confounders is going to balance out. It can, it can be done under the right conditions, but you have to learn that. And so I think for people who who you know have a reasonable but not overly sophisticated understanding of DAGs, going a step further into sign DAGs is probably a step too far. But yeah, I think it would be a great thing for people to learn sign DAGs.
0: Yeah, it's it's a useful tool. I I, I like thinking about it. And it, it helps me also when I'm I have the results in front of me to sort of try to understand is this what I would have expected to happen or not.
1: Yep, yeah, fair enough.
0: But enough about DAG. So today we're talking about measurement and measurement error. So this is chapter 13. No surprise, it talks about errors in the measurement of our exposure, our outcome, and other covariates, confounding variables, etc, that we might be interested in. So the first thing they start off with is defining measurement and measurement error and misclassification, and how these two types of errors can produce information bias. So Matt, will you, for the listeners who are waiting, please, define measurement error misclassification for us.
1: Yeah, so you know the way the book goes about it, and I would certainly agree, these are terms for what I would call mismeasurement of a variable. But the reason you've got two terms, measurement error and misclassification, is measurement error, if you were going with a strict definition, would apply to continuous measures, whereas misclassification would apply to categorical variables because you are being classified in a category. It isn't strictly a continuous measurement that you're just getting the value off on. But I've always sort of thought of it as measurement error to me feels more like a catch-all term, and misclassification is really specific to categorical variables. But I can see the logic for wanting to have one term for continuous and one term for categorical variables.
0: What do you think the logic is? The logic is related to how we correct for these problems, or or why do you think we differentiate?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's exactly right. I think we adjust for these different methods in different ways. And given that the methods for adjustment for categorical variables is, in a a lot of ways more applicable to epidemiologists because we often deal with dichotomous outcomes and often with dichotomous exposures as well, though we're dealing with things that obviously can be continuous. But we deal with disease states. You know, Sometimes you want to have something like blood pressure as your outcome, and that's a continuous state. So that would be different. But a lot of epidemiology deals with categorical variables. And therefore, I think it's just the way of being precise in the different methods that we are going to use to describe the impact of and then adjust for the misclassification.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think conceptually also, when I think about measurement error, let's say we'll use blood pressure as an example. Somebody comes in and you measure their blood pressure and the machine is miscalibrated and you do a bad job of measuring it. So that would introduce measurement error. But when you talk about misclassification, let's say we're now categorizing people into hypertension, high blood pressure versus no hypertension. Measurement error seems less self-inflicted than misclassification, or rather, I'll I'll state that in the reverse. Misclassification seems like a problem that we often introduce relative to measurement error. Where, Where do you stand on that?
1: So there is for sure a subset of the problem of misclassification that results from categorizing continuous variables. But at the same time, many of the things that we actually want to measure are in fact categorical in nature. And therefore, obviously, you have to use a categorical variable. But lots of things is that we do want to study the effects of in epidemiology are continuous. And so by categorizing them, we can introduce further errors on top of the mismeasurement that results from the categorization. So... I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 a little conflicted here because if the boundaries of the categories are well defined, the reason that you get it wrong when you categorize is because you mismeasured it.
0: But when are the boundaries of the categories
1: clearly defined? Yeah. They're always clearly defined. I'm not saying they're conceptually correct, but they're clearly defined. The boundary is more than 3 cigarettes and you're a smoker. I don't know whatever it is, but I'm only going to get you in the wrong category if I've mismeasured the number of cigarettes.
0: But I think the crux of what I'm trying to say is the boundary, the category is often arbitrarily imposed.
1: Sure, but that's not a measurement problem. That's just an arbitrary decision as to what your exposure categories are going to be.
0: But if you think about something like hypertension, there are these guidelines that used to say 140 over 90. If you're above that, it's hypertension. But who's to say that that is truly the boundary for hypertension as a construct suddenly becoming bad? for
1: you? As a construct, I, I would agree, but I, I don't think that is necessarily a problem. You can get the right answer to a, a question that isn't that useful. I think that's different from conceptual error, which is what I'm actually trying to measure is A, I'm measuring B. So I'm trying to measure, like the example I gave last time, I'm trying to measure teacher quality. What I'm actually measuring is how easy the instructor is. That's a conceptual misclassification or even measurement error, depending on how you're measuring it. As opposed to, I can get the right answer and As to what the effect is of scoring above X on a teaching evaluation on some outcome Y, it just may not be a useful question. I don't see that as a measurement problem.
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple things being conflated here. So that example you just gave about teaching evaluations, you used that previously when you said that teaching evaluations are higher for easier instructors. In my mind, that is measurement error, right? Because you think you're measuring teaching quality or some kind of marker of how good a teacher you are, but really you're measuring measuring how easy in this little example. Okay, so that's measurement error. If you are then trying to define who is a good teacher versus not a good teacher based on some score that you got from those teaching evaluations over the your whole school, those who got high marks are good teachers, the measurement error results in the misclassification of who is good versus not.
1: I don't agree. That's just a decision that we make as to what we decide is a good teacher. You can think it's a silly choice, But it's not a measurement error. It's a correct measurement of a silly thing.
0: So using this example with teaching evaluations, what would be an example of misclassification using this context? Well, so
1: that's a hard one because we we, we both agree that conceptually it is mismeasured. So take something that you could actually measure like age. You can categorize age into old and young and we can agree or disagree as to whether our decision as to where we categorize is a good choice, but I can also mismeasure your age by just saying, how old are you? And you tell me you're 32 and I accept that and write it down in my database. So I have mismeasured it, but I can still use a categorization that would be correct if I had measured it correct. It could be a dumb categorization for old and young, but that's just a a decision that we make.
0: Well, my mind is being a little bit exploded right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, let's use this old young example for a second. If you have a data set of 500 people, and you have their absolutely correctly measured age from birth certificates. And so you know, there is no measurement error in the measurement of age. you as an analyst decide I'm going to create a variable that is old and young. You are saying that the misclassification occurs when somebody who is really 25 goes into the old category, if if old is, is 65.
1: Yes older than 65, not younger. Yeah,
0: sorry. So in this concept you're proposing, there's no space for conceptual mis- types of misclassification. We're just talking about sorting errors because I view it as both. I view them as as different dimensions of misclassification, different types of misclassification maybe, but they're both types of misclassification in my mind. You're still putting people into the wrong grouping, whether it's due to mismeasurement, measurement error, or due to, I guess, a manual type of sorting error
1: yeah why though I mean I can categorize everybody correctly based on whether they're old or young based on some dichotomous cut point and I could change that cut point repeatedly and still get everybody in the right category and I could look at the effects of those different categorizations on an outcome to me that's not a misclassification problem even conceptually unless there's something that old and young is supposed to correspond to that I'm not really measuring but we haven't defined anything like with the teaching example what we're saying is we know what we want to measure it's quality but we have questions that don't actually measure quality they measure something different age is is different. Age is just a number defined in relation to the date of your birth. And I can measure that correctly and I can look at different ways to categorize it. I don't think of that as measurement error.
0: Wow. So I see them as both misclassification because with the first example you said we want to measure quality. Well, firstly, I don't actually know how you define quality. I don't think there is a real definition of quality. So you go out and do these evaluations with the hope that you're getting something close to quality. So you have two problems problems in that example versus the age example, you really only have one problem, which is where you impose the cut point.
1: What were the two problems in the previous?
0: Doing a, a bad job at measuring quality and determining who is good versus who is not good as a teacher.
1: I think those are different problems, though, the cut point for age versus the cut point for quality. Well, no, I mean, there are three issues. We can have a measure that we say is quality, but isn't. Mm -hmm. That's conceptual misclassification.
0: No, that's conceptual measurement error.
1: Conceptual measurement error, sure. Then we can ask people a bunch of questions and get bad information. So in other words, if the information that they gave us were correct, it still wouldn't correspond to the thing that we are wanting to measure. But they could also give us bad information or we could record it incorrectly or misunderstand what they're saying. So we can get it wrong there. Then we can dichotomize it into good or bad. To me, it's the the first one is the conceptual misclassification. The second one is getting bad information. And the third one is just a an analytic decision that we have to decide on whether or not it, it corresponds to anything useful in the real world. But I think we can still put people in the correct categories if we had perfect information.
0: Right. But I guess I see it when you say it's an analytic decision. I see it as an analytic decision that introduces misclassification in the same vein as an analytic decision to restrict or stratify that could introduce a selection bias. You are making a decision as an analyst to do something that introduces this misclassification in your data set, in your analysis, your results that you are getting, let's say you're comparing two categories of your exposure, you have the wrong people in those two categories based on the cut point that you impose.
1: Okay, fair enough. I see what you're getting at. So would you say then that if I have data that is mismeasured and then I categorize it into something that you would say is arbitrary. The bias comes from the mismeasurement, not from the categorization, which is to say if I had everybody perfectly measured and put them into the right category, there would be no bias.
0: If you had everyone perfectly measured and put them into the right categories, yes, I would agree there would be no bias.
1: So then the categorization isn't creating bias, it's the mismeasurement.
0: But it's predicated on putting them into the correct categories.
1: But putting them into the correct categories or incorrectly putting them in categories comes from the mismeasurement, not the decision to categorize.
0: Let me try to explain it in a different way. So if you have a continuous variable that's mismeasured and you use that variable in your analysis and you get a somewhat wrong answer because you have this mismeasured variable, there's some error in your answer. If you were to do the, the same measurement, mismeasurement, and then categorize individuals poorly, so there's misclassification in that.
1: Wait, sorry, when you say poorly, I'm taking the information, albeit misclassified, and I'm even getting them into the wrong category based on the mismeasured version? Is that what you're saying?
0: Correct, yeah.
1: Okay, so that would be by, that I would agree is an additional source of bias. If I am mis- Categorizing people, the number, whether it be correct or not, is that their blood pressure is 120, and I put them in the category of blood pressure over 130. That would be an additional source of error. I would agree there.
0: Okay, so I think that's what I was trying to say all along. I guess I'm not clear on. So when you just said you put them over the 130 category, it doesn't matter to you that 130 is not representative of any true increased risk related to your blood pressure.
1: It does matter to me. I think what I believe is it doesn't matter to me in terms of bias. In other words, I, we could say that it's not a useful question because the, the categories don't correspond to anything useful. I'm open to that. I'm just saying I don't think it's bias. I think you could get the right answer to the question if we had everything perfectly measured and then perfectly categorized to a question that just might not be that interesting or useful.
0: So in the chapter, when they talk about construct validity, Mm -hmm. how does construct validity in your mind relate to bias?
1: So to me, that is a source of bias in the sense that there is a question that we're trying to answer. Let me go back to the teaching quality question. Let's say we've got a, you know, an intervention that is designed to train teachers to be better educators. And we randomly allocate teachers to be, you know, either in this program or not, and we compare them. And then at the end, we have a, a survey that we give the students and we say, How good was your teacher? We can get the perfect answers to those questions, but still get a biased answer to the question, does the program impact the quality of teaching? Because the thing we are trying to measure, quality of teaching, is not being captured in the questions that we're asking the students. So we're getting an answer to a different question. And we don't know what that question is, but we're getting the answer to a question of what is the impact of my teaching program on some other outcome. So I think I'm answering one question, but I'm getting a biased version of that because I'm not actually measuring the outcome I think I'm measuring.
0: Okay, I think that's a great example. And that's very clear to me how that, that would be an example of construct error, I would say, or lack of construct validity. Mm-hmm. To bring it back full circle to this blood pressure example, if you say, I think I'm getting an answer to this question about high blood pressure being a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, but really the cut point I've chosen to define high blood pressure is not representative of high blood pressure. How is that different than the questions you were asking about teaching quality, not not actually capturing teaching quality
1: I see why you why you would say that, and I think it's, you can make a, a very reasonable argument that way. I guess just the way I think of it is, I think quality of education is something that we we would really struggle to come up with a good definition of, but we all agree is a thing. High blood pressure is just a arbitrary cutoff in a thing that we can measure. I don't know that there is some concept that's underlying high blood pressure. It's just a number above which we think we're going to take action
0: But that's the underlying concept, isn't it? Isn't the underlying concept that ideally there's a a threshold or some limit
1: I don't believe that, though. Does anyone believe that if your blood pressure is 119, it's fine, and then at 120, there is this suddenly you're at risk? I I don't think anyone thinks that. I think we make those categories for reasons of identifying where we want to intervene, but I don't think anyone conceptually believes that there's some hard change in risk associated with going above a very strict and clear number in your blood pressure. So I I think it's just something we use for convenience but i don't i don't think it's a underlying concept that we're trying to capture that we really truly believe exists. Of course, i know very little about hypertension, so <laughs> this could be a bad example, but that would be my layperson's understanding.
0: Yeah, i agree with you in the sense that, you know, the difference between 119, 120 and 121, if that's your cut point if 120 is your cut point is not really important. Okay, let's move on from <laughs> from this question about measurement. Error versus misclassification, but it was an interesting conversation. I, I didn't realize that other people thought differently than me about that. So, I'm
1: glad. isn't that basically the theme of this podcast? We talk and we realize we have totally different understandings of things. Yes,
0: and and even things that I thought I really thought we would be on the same page about.
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: All right. So after the chapter starts out with this, what I we thought would be a basic <laughs> start off point. Once we understand these concepts of of measurement error, misclassification, can you talk to me a little bit about the sources of error that we might have in our, our analyses?
1: Yeah, I mean, the chapter does a good job of this. I think there are probably, probably a long list of ways that things can be mismeasured or misclassified. I started jotting down from the text and also my way of thinking about it. I think first and foremost, as the book talks about, you can have this construct validity problem where you, know, you have something that cannot be measured directly. And so you've got to ask some questions to get at a construct. So an example, as you know, I use a Lot, it would be you know, teaching quality. So we have this idea is we want to measure whether or not somebody is a good teacher, but we don't really have a, a set of questions that we can use that accurately gets directly at that point of, are you a good instructor? So we asked students questions about, did you like the instructor? And did they adhere to the objectives of the class? And you know did they show up on time and all these things that we were trying to probe at a particular concept. But we may find that actually what we're really just measuring is the instructor likable, or do they grow easily or things like that. So that's the conceptual misclassification. Then, then you have all the issues with how we're going to define the particular variable. So we typically want to define exposures in terms of their dose and duration, but people don't always know the dose and duration of things. So you ask people about their smoking. Do people actually remember when they started smoking and how many cigarettes they smoked over their lives? So no. So we've got problems there in terms of not just getting the exposure itself right, but in how much over what period of time we have problems in getting Getting that right, we've got problems in terms of do people understand the question that you're asking them? Right, is it phrased in a way that they can actually give you the information that you want, so that they understand and can respond? You have misclassification of things in terms of the relevant time period. So thinking back in terms of induction period, I think the, the example was around asking people about their alcohol consumption. If we're interested in alcohol consumption in relation to uh, an automobile accident, it's really not relevant to know how much they drank over their lifetime. It's really relevant. Only to know how much they had consumed in the period before they got into the automobile. So you have timing, accuracy issues that can lead to mismeasurement. Then of course, if you're having to ask people for information, you've got, do people want to tell you the information? You've got social desirability bias, all sorts of things around that. But even if you don't, have to ask people if you've got a test, how good is the test? How well do the results get reported back from the lab into the study or to the medical record, whatever it is? And then finally, then the information has to get to you in your database. So do you transcribe the information correctly? Does the information get corrupted in electronic transfer? Things like that. So all these different ways that things can go wrong. And there's there's a lot more, but that's sort of a list of things I just jotted down off the top of my head after looking through the chapter and thinking through what I thought was important.
0: There are just so many ways that things can go wrong. It's it's honestly a bit scary. And there are so few times that we really think about all the ways that something can go wrong. It's just so vastly underreported how wrong the variables we get really are and how well they're measuring what we think they're measuring.
1: Yeah, and that's why I think we can assume that everything that we deal with is mismeasured to some extent. Hopefully, we've really minimized the degree, but you're probably never going to get it perfect in a reasonable sense study, but can we minimize those? And then can we minimize the direction that the bias is likely to have by making those misclassification or measurement errors non-differential with respect to and non-dependent with respect to other key variables? So we talked a little bit about differential versus non-differential dependent versus independent, but there are, of course, lots of ways in which those mechanisms of misclassification occur. And we want to strive to do everything we can to get those, those misclassification or measurement error issues to be in. Independent and non differential. So when you think about differential misclassification versus non differential, blinding is what's done in randomized trials to try and minimize the impact of differential misclassification, which can result from if I know what my exposure is, it might affect how I report my outcome, but you can also have things like surveillance bias, right? People who are smokers might get checked more often for lung cancer. And so you might be more likely to diagnose lung cancer in those who are smokers or diagnose it earlier because they were smokers
0: are surveillance biases information bias
1: i think they can be i think you can get better information on people because they were under surveillance more
0: yeah yeah that's true i I see that
1: and that the amount of misclassification differs based on how much
0: surveillance you're having. Of course. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And then going back to what we were talking about earlier with collapsing continuous measures into categorical variables. There, as I said, I mean, I think we can argue about whether or not conceptually it's the right thing to do. But what I think is underappreciated is that when you have non-differential misclassification of a continuous measure, you can turn it into differential misclassification when you categorize. And that is clearly something that we want to avoid. So to the extent that we can using continuous measures, I think, makes a lot more sense.
0: Yes, from a information bias misclassification perspective, certainly that can be avoided in large part by, by using continuous measures. I think you you ha- there is a trade-off in terms of how your results may be interpreted by the, the readership of, of a journal or a clinician. You know, what is a beta coefficient for a one unit change compared to comparing two categories, but certainly from an information bias and and wanting to minimize uh, misclassification bias, avoiding categorization is, is a surefire way to, to help with that. Yep. Great. So after the chapter, it moves into DAGs to describe basically four different scenarios. So it talks about differential and non-differential misclassification, as well as dependent and independent. I find these concepts confusing a little bit, honestly. And I think these four DAGs are among the most important parts of understanding measurement error or misclassification, I should say, because I just always have them in mind when I'm thinking about about misclassification. So Matt, can you help me understand better the difference between differential and non and dependent and non?
1: Yeah, I share your feeling about the DAG. So this is in the chapter, but it's based on a paper by Cole and Hernan, or Hernan and Cole, where they laid out some pretty clear DAGs to describe the different types of measurement error. I find them incredibly useful for describing the problem. I don't find them super useful to actually use in practice in DAGs that I'm using, unless there's just sort of a very specific problem I want to illustrate. I don't find adding measurement nodes onto DAGs that I'm using all that often very helpful. That's largely because DAGs don't tell you about direction and magnitude of bias, and that's what I'm really interested in when it comes to misclassification and measurement error. So to get to your question, there are two axes along which we think about misclassification, and let's just think about dichotomous exposures or outcomes or or confounders for the moment, but you can expand these concepts, obviously, to multi-level categorical variables as well. So when we think about differential versus non-differential, we are saying that the misclassification of a variable, you know, a key variable in analysis an exposure or an outcome or a confounder does not depend on the true value of another key variable in your analysis. So in other words, if I've got an exposure that I have some misclassification in, it would be non-differential if the amount of misclassification of the exposure doesn't depend on the true value of the outcome it would be differential if it does depend on the true value of the outcome. So we think about recall bias, for example. Recall bias is when you've asked people who have a particular outcome compared to people who don't have a particular outcome about their recall of their exposures, the ability to recollect those exposures is going to be affected by the outcome. So if you've developed a a cancer, you might think a lot about different exposures that might have caused your cancer. And so you might have better recall than somebody who didn't have that cancer. So the misclassification now depends on a second variable and it depends on the true value it doesn't matter for purposes of differential and non-differential misclassification whether or not i measured the outcome correctly because the mismeasurement doesn't come from my measurement of the outcome it comes from the actual value of the outcome right the person either does or does not have cancer and that in reality does affect their recall so it's the true value of the second variable that matters When it comes to dependent versus independent, now we're talking about mismeasurement of two variables. And the mismeasurement of those two variables is correlated. In other words, the way I always like to think about this is, let's say you've got a dichotomous exposure and a dichotomous outcome. If 10% of people have their exposure misclassified and 10% of people have their outcome misclassified, then if those errors are completely independent, multiply 10% by 10%, you would expect 1% of people to be doubly misclassified, both their exposure and their outcome dependent error or dependent misclassification is when the reality differs from the expectation. So let's say we have 10% of people are misclassified in their exposure, 10% are misclassified in their outcome. But when we actually go and look in terms of double misclassification, 2 or 3% of people are doubly misclassified. It's still 10% and 10%. But when you look at the joint misclassification, it's 3% of people rather than 1%. And that is misclassification that comes about because typically, there are lots of ways it can come out, but the most common would be you have a common source of information for both variables. So self-report would be probably the most common example. If I ask a person to tell me about their number of sexual partners over their lifetime, and I ask them to tell me about their history of sexually transmitted infections, if people are unwilling to give you accurate information, they might understate whether or not they'd ever had an STI and also understate the number of sexual partners they'd had. Or it could be the opposite, whatever it is, but because you've got the same source of information, the errors correlate and certain people are more likely to be misclassified on both variables than just one.
0: That's such a helpful example. So I have I have a few follow-up questions for you on that. Okay. Related to differential and non. Can you have differential exposure misclassification in a prospective cohort study where you're measuring someone's exposure at baseline, you're following them through time and seeing whatever, who died or who didn't die. Can you have differential exposure misclassification in that scenario when you're measuring exposure before your outcome happens?
1: So I believe the answer to that is yes. But I think it's probably not super common. But I think there would be ways in which your exposure measurement would be affected by something that has not yet happened in the future, but you have reason to believe might happen. So, for example, if, you know, you've got some exposure in relation to a a cancer and you are cancer free at baseline, but you're sort of already down the pathway of developing the cancer and you have suspicion about that. So if if the exposure is, say, self-reported, you might report your exposures differently based on your expectation of your risk of developing the cancer. And that could also happen, of course, if there was a common cause type situation where you've got family history affecting the measurement of the exposure and also affecting the true value of the outcomes. You know, you know you have a family history of a type of cancer, so you are on the lookout for things. You might avoid certain exposures, right? That would be the confounding problem. But you might also misreport your exposures because you have concerns about it. So I think it could happen. I just don't think it's probably all that common.
0: And when you think about that common cause structure, the family history example you gave, adjusting for family history in that scenario, what happens?
1: Yeah, so this is where I'm outside my depths here, because if you were to draw the DAG, I think the DAG would indicate that you could adjust for the confounder, it would go away. But I'd want to see that proven to me. I've certainly seen papers and examples, I'm pretty sure Sandra Greenland has a paper about this in probably the 80s or the 90s, that shows that adjustment for predictors of misclassification can actually do harm. So I, I my sense is you can't, but may, it may just be that there are certain scenarios where you can and certain scenarios where you can't. I'm in over my head. <laughs> so if somebody can weigh in and tell us, I'd love to know.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I need to go back or maybe we can f- find that, that Greenland paper because I don't see that often discussed.
1: So that Greenland paper is pre-DAGs, so it's not going to uh, explain it in a DAG type way.
0: That's okay. I, I can still understand things without DAGs, I think. Uh,
1: no, fair enough. I don't know that it answers the question. I think it just simply demonstrates there can be problems, but I don't think it, it answers your question.
0: Okay. Okay. Something to investigate further when we have in our all our free time. Something for you to write the paper. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you a call when I get to it. Nice. The next question I have is about dependent misclassification. I gave that, that great example where if there's a common source of the misclassification in both of those variables, what happens if the amount of misclassification differs for your exposure and outcome, even though there's a common source? So thinking about that STI and sexual partners example with self-reporting, you may go in one direction for one variable and the other direction for another variable. Conceptually, what happens? And, and then how do you detect something like
1: that? So you could still come up with the expectation, assuming we're talking about non-differential but dependent, the rates of misclassification of the exposure and the outcome can be the same across those other two variables, but it still leads to those dependencies. And yeah, I mean, you could still have an expectation. So I gave you ten percent misclassified in the exposure and ten percent misclassified in the outcome, but it could be twenty percent misclassified in the exposure and ten percent on the outcome. The expectation is now two percent of people doubly misclassified. Right. Okay. And so you could look. You could then stratify your data by the exposure and the outcome and the true value of the exposure and the outcome if you had validation data on both. And you could see how much dependent misclassification there is. But people barely ever collect validation data for a single variable, let alone a two variables stratified by each other and have enough power to be able to say anything. So sort of we talk about sensitivity and specificity measures. There become 12 different parameters you have to worry about if you've got a dichotomous exposure and a dichotomous outcome. Nobody's going to measure those. So I think more it's about intuition when it comes to dependent error. So it's about, do I have reason to believe the two key variables in my study could suffer from a common source of error because I use self-report for both or because I, you know, I use a medical record for both of those pieces of information and the person putting the information in the medical record, I'm now getting their common biases. Things like that are the way you have to approach that problem.
0: And so do you think it's important to discuss that in a, the sense that I think it might be, this might be happening? Or do you think we should try to move towards quantitatively assessing that?
1: So I don't believe you can really quantitatively assess that dependent error unless you have a got a big study and you have set out to do a reasonably sized validation study to detect this problem in the first place. But the thing is, you would have no reason to do that if you had separated out your sources of information. So typically in epidemiology, we're not often worried about dependent errors when it comes to exposures and outcomes with the exception of self-reported cross-sectional surveys. But typically in epidemiology, we're dealing with the exposure might be self-reported, but the outcome we get from a test or a medical record or something different. So I wouldn't say that is a pervasive problem in epidemiology, exposure outcome dependent errors. What I do think is a potential common problem is exposure confounder dependent errors, because we often get both the exposure and information on the confounders from a baseline survey. And there, again, if you've got one person giving you self-reported information, their biases come. Come through in both variables.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree about traditionally we don't have those dependent sources of exposure and outcome, but with the rise of medical records and big data, I see that as a potential source of dependent error that is not frequently discussed.
1: Maybe, but if you're using medical records, the, the medical record itself, I don't think, is subject to dependent misclassification. It's the person who's putting the information into the medical record, and you know if if all the information is the clinician's assessment, then I suppose absolutely you could have that. But typically, that's not really what's happening is, you know, the clinician is doing some tests for blood markers. Those aren't going to suffer from the same sources of error as the things that the clinician is looking for in a physical exam, which is also not going to be the same as the misclassification or measurement error in things that the clinician is asking you to self-report, like how much alcohol you consume, things like that. So it would just depend on, is it really, I'm going to a medical record for three things, an exposure, an outcome, and a confounder that really were all collected by the clinician asking a person to self-report, then I'd be worried. But if it's, you know, three different sources, then I probably wouldn't.
0: Okay. That's that's a helpful distinction, even though it's coming from a common data source, I guess you would call it, the the way in which that data was entered is still different. Yep. All right. So I, I, I guess... Yeah, th- th- this has been super helpful for me. I hope it's it's been helpful for others to to understand these concepts better. The the rest of the chapter is really focused on bias analysis for misclassification and talks about different approaches that we can use to estimate sensitivity and specificity. They call it predictive value positive and predictive value negative. You don't like that? No, why why do they do that? What what what's the difference? You know, I always learned about it as positive and negative predictive values. There's no difference. It's just a uh... I, I know obviously that conceptually it means the same thing. But but why do you think they write those?
1: Are you are you team relative risk or team risk ratio? Oh, risk ratio. So are you team positive <laughs> predictive value or predictive value positive?
0: I guess so. But but isn't it always abbreviated as PPV and NPV?
1: So you're saying in their case it, it would
0: be PVP, PVP. and PVN?
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. If
0: somebody used the abbreviation PVN, I would have zero <laughs> idea what they were talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they yeah, they chose that's that.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's just, I guess, you know, you're right. It, it's relative risk and risk ratio. Uh, although risk ratio is clearly the, the correct term in, in that context. Is there anything else that you want to discuss in the chapter? Is there anything that, that jumped out at you that we haven't talked about yet?
1: No, I think I think we're good.
0: This was a really helpful conversation, for me at least. I hope others get a lot out of it as well, in describing these different sources of bias and really beginning to understand you know, how these all play out in our, our real-life data, I think is really important and under-discussed. So hopefully we can, we can begin as a field to discuss issues related to measurement error misclassification in the same way that confounded is so often discussed, measurement error needs its, its time in the, the sun as well. I would agree. All right. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June in Portland. It also gets you access to the SCR library, which gives you some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, casual inference if you like this podcast we think you'll like that one as well and a reminder that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts alone and do not represent the views of the society for epidemiologic research we really appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our next episode coming up next month bye matt
1: bye Haley.